Christopher Haluski. And I'm Jason Alejandro. And this is Dissection, brought to you by JK Design. Andy Chen and Vikas Wade are partners at Isometric, a visual identity and graphic design consultancy that specializes in print, digital, and exhibition design. Based in New York City, they collaborate with cultural institutions, businesses, and nonprofits to reinvent the way they present themselves visually and strategically. Isometric also works with a variety of organizations that represent marginalized and underserved populations, including civilians in zones of conflict, subjects of human trafficking, and more. They believe in design that transcends existing expectations by challenging cliches and stereotypes in visual culture. In this episode, we speak with Andy and Vikas about the branding and environmental design they did for the Princeton University Field Center. So this is a really cool project because we haven't really spoken to many people about environmental branding. We had talked to Stefan Bucher about the work he did for the Blue Man Group and the design of um, kind of the environment at the theater in Las Vegas, which is really interesting. And so um, I, I'm, there might be some others that I'm not thinking of, but it's not that often that we that we get to talk about these type of projects. So I really love environmental branding and graphics. It's just so cool to see a brand come to life on the walls and in the environment itself. So I really enjoyed this conversation. And I think the work that um, these guys did was spectacular and really great. Yeah, it's um, I, th- I think one of the things that I really enjoy most about the work that Isometric does is um, that it, it manages to be smart without being elitist in fact it's like incredibly there's something accessible about it um and yeah it's just very human work you know and um and i think that work that is very respectful of the client audiences um and not just with this project but if you kind of go and look at all of their other projects um that's something that's consistent you know throughout it um and also i think with this project though um, just visually, like, you know, this is something for Princeton, but it's got this bright blue color, which is totally different. doesn't feel Princeton at all. It, you know, could be almost anywhere. Um, it's just seems like a really um, uh, inviting and also exciting space that they've managed to create for students uh, on campus there. Touch on this a little. I really love the nature of this project and that, Again, it's something that we don't get to do very often, talking to someone about a project that's not just about marketing or branding for the sake of business or branding for the sake of um, commerce. Um, you know, This is branding for the sake of creating a safe and welcoming environment for, um, for people of marginalized or people of um, minorities on the Princeton campus. And, um, it's not something we talk about very often. Not, not many pro- there's not many projects out there like that, period. That's true. Yeah. And so I think that was also a really fascinating aspect of this interview. You know, the crossroads of design and branding and yeah. race and politics and all of these things that kind of come together in this one physical space on the Princeton campus. And how Andy and Vikas handled that and treated that and approached it and thought about it. And even how they worked with the architect of the campus to kind of address the what they perceived students would think and feel and want this space to be and you know one of the maybe one of the advantages that they that they had um or at the very least it was um 
something they could consider was the fact that they had been students at Princeton, right? So that's another kind of unique part of of this project, right, is, is how often do you get designers who get to design for in, an institution with which they are really that familiar with, you know, where they spent uh, <clears throat> four or five years of their lives, you know, kind of coming of age uh, and all of those things, um, and maybe had, uh, in fact, certainly had firsthand experience with um, the kinds of topics and issues with which this project deals with. Um, and I think for them, um, it it's also really cool because, you know, this is one of their earlier projects uh, kind of done at this scale, but they've then, you know, since gone on to do more and more projects like this. My favorite part is just type on the walls like mm, yeah big type little type like just there's type everywhere there's type you know on bookcases and in corners and just you know um i love seeing that kind of application of typography um and to me brings to mind the work of paula share and um and i think it's just it's really uh really beautiful work yeah. all right so with no further ado my name is Andy Chen, and I'm Vakas Jawaid. We're partners at Isometric, which is a design studio based in Brooklyn. We are a team of five right now, and essentially we work on a variety of projects, mostly to do with visual identities as they exist in print, digital, and physical spaces. And basically trying to think about how each of these projects, regardless of what client they're for, corporate, or startups, or nonprofits, or educational institutions can begin to tell stories that uplift marginalized people and promote a culture of inclusion, equality, and progress. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for being here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about how this project for the Field Center at Princeton University got started? Where did, you know, how was the first contact made? You know, where did, where did you guys uh, kind of jump on board with this? So we had been working with the university's women's center for a little while. Essentially, it's a, it's a center for students where people go and learn about gender, gender and gender inequality. And we had done some work that got some notice because it called out the university and specifically uh, trying to use its own terms. For example, fraternity rush process is called bicker. We said, well, that's pretty much a misogynist thing still where women are routinely degraded in these processes for male pleasure and it's sort of hidden underneath the surface of a very well-manicured Princeton environment. And so that work got noticed and essentially they thought, well, we have um, a, a social problem on this campus that we want you to address. And that was about two years ago, students sat in Nassau Hall, which is the president's office, and they demanded that the university pay attention to their identity. And these were students of color, and particularly people from the Black Justice League. And their thought was, you know, basically, we're not even recognized on this campus. People don't know we exist, and they don't know our history, and they don't know uh, that we're being oppressed. And so it's not even sort of that, that uh, there are these sort of very outright forms of oppression. They're always underneath the surface in the form of microaggressions, but they sort of uh, define people's experience at Princeton implicitly. And so basically, the students demanded a, a space where their values could be shared and heard and that they could feel at home at Princeton, which uh, felt like a very, to them, an alienating environment. And so 
basically we're called in to address this issue through a visual identity at first and to think about, well, how can we take the Carl Field Center, which you know, people kind of barely knew on campus. They didn't know uh, what it was for, who it was for, who Carl Fields is, um, and uh, you know, what the history was. So we were called in to help amplify that history. And so we started by interviewing and photographing students who work with the center. So particularly students of color, so um, black students, Asian students, Latinx students, but also white students who uh, recognize their own privilege and their own position as being able to sort of change the culture on campus. So essentially we took that data photography and language that we received from the students and transformed it into a visual identity. So going into this project, um, did the people at the university give you direction and a brief or what like as you've described it so far it sounds like they just kind of had a problem and they looked to you to find a solution is that fair or did they come to you with a very clear direction on here's the solution please execute it i think that because we're alumni they they kind of trust our judgment on being able to understand the content mm -hmm. and being able to be somewhat self-led in the design process mm -hmm. and there were a lot of meetings and conversations with students and also staff about sort of, uh, are these the right words? You know, can we change the name of the center? We can't have to keep this very long name. Can we focus on words like equality? Yes, we can do that. And trying to figure out what the vocabulary is and also getting feedback from students and staff to think about like, what is the most appropriate way of approaching this topic? You know, can the graphic design do more than simply become sort of this commercial veneer that makes things look good? You know, like, great, like it looks like branded, but that's actually a no-no at Princeton. You know, people don't want it to feel commercial. They want it to feel soulful and connected to a narrative. And so I, I, to answer your question, I think that for the most part, um, it, they didn't give us too much instruction. And the project um, really began as uh, with the goal of student engagement. That's what we had done with the Women's Center. And uh, soon after we started, the sit-in happened. And suddenly the importance of the project and its kind of consequences and the stakes um, became a lot higher. And after the sit-in, we did the photo shoots and got all the quotes. And then after that, when people started questioning and bringing up the history of Woodrow Wilson and his kind of legacy in the federal government of resegregating, you know, various departments and basically uh, Pushing, uh, pulling the country back in terms of civil rights. Um, this, along with you know, a national crisis that was happening in college campuses, made the project kind of really important, not to mention the campaigning that was happening by Donald Trump. So that summer when it, became, when it went from a visual identity project to a spatial project, the university was kind of in a crisis management uh, position and they knew that the students would come back and they wouldn't know how to respond to this new political climate and so this space was really a way of for the university to say that you know we hear you too but the institution in the shoes of these students and on, on their behalf kind of acknowledge this language of you know we're here we're loved yeah. we've been here the Woodrow Wilson thing is actually really critical because essentially people kind of remember him for the League of Nations. He was a, both a Princeton president and also a U.S. president. But like Vakas said, he was also a racist, and you can say that you know that was pretty much 
true for most people of his time, but he actually actively resegregated things after it was desegregated. And so students of color at Princeton, particularly black students, feel uh, very vulnerable at a school where buildings and, uh, and other kind of iconography are sort of built um, to revere this man. And the university's position, which I think is a nuanced one, is that we don't want to erase history, right? Uh, you could compare to the Robert E. Lee uh, you know, statues in Charlottesville. You know, we don't necessarily want to take it down. We want to nuance it and provide the appropriate context so people understand that basically this man was amazing uh, historically and he also accomplished great things, but his legacy is in part defined by his mistakes and defined by his uh, oppression of minority groups. Also, this is, this is important because the one of the flagship programs, right, the school, one of the flagship schools really at Princeton is the Woodrow Wilson School, um, you know, a school for, for policy and international, you know, public policy, international policy, um, it's where it's a major world leaders. Yeah, yeah. It's named the Woodrow Wilson yeah. School. Yeah. And the, the idea is that, you know, Princeton's original motto was in the nation's service in the service of all nations. And, you know, the, the first part of that statement came from Woodrow Wilson. And their suggested amendment based on sort of you know, community feedback in light of these kind of protests where it was to take part of the statement from Woodrow Wilson and part of the statement from Sonia Sotomayor. And now it says, in the nation's service, in the service of humanity. But in order for that to really mean anything, you need to do something, right? And so um, the university is very wary of taking any political stances, not simply because of uh, you know, a diverse donor base, but also thinking about you know, what is the role of um, the academic mind when it comes to social issues. We can't be too uh, particular in our, in our stance or too fixed to a, a particular time, but we also have to speak up for justice. And I think the university is sensitive to that and they're open to d different ways of having the conversation. So where do you even start <laughs> with a project like this, given its... Um, Given the fact that you know these sit-ins, they were on the national news, for example. Um, so the universities, which are you know usually um, need to um, project a certain public image, right? Um, they don't want parents of potential students or future students, pro uh, prospective students, to you know know maybe be aware of all of the controversy that might be happening on campus. They want to keep things under wraps sometimes. Well, like, how do you even start addressing an issue of this magnitude? I, I think that's why the, the initial interviews of students and, and the language that we got from them was important. So they would say things like, I don't know if there's a space for me at Princeton, or my greatest accomplishment is that I survived. And we put these on posters, you know, we put these in materials, things like, you know, let's be real, this place is privileged. And, but there are kind people at Princeton too if you seek them out. And so trying to... Uh, and it was yeah. interesting because in the news, in the, in the media, the messaging was that these kids are privileged, they're complaining, they're coddled, and you know, they really need to grow up, these millennials and you know, younger people of today. And when we talked to the students, what we heard was that we are growing up in a system that we don't kind of recognize or agree with, that people seem to have become used to, but does not seem fair to us. So we're trying to find a way to change things because they were viewing their experience within the context of police shootings, within you know the racial kind of 
landscape within the country as a whole. And if you think about a university as a microcosm of, uh, of the whole nation, and that the ideas that are kind of developed there end up affecting the whole country. You know, that was their place. And they were not finding uh, a, a productive avenue to be able to make those changes. And so we, what we heard from them was a very different narrative. And once you make it specific and human, it uh, really begin, begins to resonate and you begin to see a different side of the picture of the and media. To relate to what Jason was saying about sort of, you know, how do we but basically provide political cover for the university. You know, I think that there was some of that, like some of um, the people who in the, in the you know, certain parts of the university believe that this renovation of this physical space or you know, to accede to student demands was basically a concession. But at the highest administrative levels, that wasn't what they were thinking, nor what their challenge was to us. You know, and I think that, uh, of course, there isn't very much communication around that sometimes because it's uncomfortable. But essentially, at the highest administrative level, they really did believe that they needed to create spaces that were inclusive of all people, and that people can feel like their identities are being dignified, and that their 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 uh, their humanity is being honored. And so, uh, basically, the physical space thing came afterwards. That they had hired an architect and done a couple of studies, and the architect was not going to be able to meet their deadline because of permitting issues, and so students would be really disappointed. And so they called Sim. And at this point, the architect had designed uh, a version of what they wanted, which was essentially um, pretty offensive to us. And we didn't know what to do because we only had three months, uh, basically, before students would come back. They called us in and said, can you put the visual identity in this space? And the design from the architect was African chairs and Asian pillows and gray wall paint, dark gray wall paint, and uh, curtains, globes, African masks, and they're, they're just like playing off of stereotypes right, cultures. Right, and it already sounds kind of bad, right, when you say it that way, but in their minds, they had heard from students, well, we want to create a space where uh, it's a homey space, where I feel, um, you know, in a home. But really what students were saying was, I want to feel at home, which is a completely different thing yeah. from creating a domestic space, right? So they had literally subdivided the space and called certain spaces the patio, the dining room, the living room. These were basically the motifs that they were after. And we had to say, this is completely off the rails, uh, going to cause shame and embarrassment to the university. And we actually had to use that vocabulary mm -hmm. in a meeting to say, we want to spare the university shame and embarrassment. Because what you're doing is exoticizing students who already feel like they're marginalized. Yeah. So in terms of the visual identity that you used, um, or that you came up with to really give form to these, these voices of students on campus, how did you arrive at the color scheme? How did you arrive at the use of imagery, photography? Um, you're using, you have this very unique um, shape that you're using throughout, um, which kind of feels almost like maybe a, a diamond or some kind of a faceted uh, element. And speak a little bit about that creative process and how you really arrived at that design solution. Were there other options that you explored along the way? So there were basically three formal moves, some of which you noted. One is the typography, which is Oriunga Sands for the, um, the most part. It's actually by the designer's foundry, and so not an expensive font, but essentially something crafted by a guy named Matt Weymouth in New Zealand, mim mimicking sort of signage, road signage, and sort of shop signage in New Zealand. 
Basically, we chose it for its handcrafted texture. It reminded us of uh, I Am A Man posters from the Civil Rights era. This idea of something that was tall and confident, but at the same time had this handcrafted sensibility to it. We liked sort of the, the rounded corners as well because it gives it a sense of warmth. Right? So it's not just about protest, but about this internal sort of uh, desire to be loved and to be cared for. Uh, and we like the sort of uneven stress of the various characters is a sense that, you know, um, that we in our studio talk a lot about Japanese kawaii, which is um, literally translated as cute, but what it really means is a kind of imperfection in the minor details that makes something even more human or something more relatable. And then as a body copy, um, Maison Noi, uh, which is by Mila Grotesque. And essentially, uh, trying to find a counterpart to something that feels very handwritten, that's something like the grotesque, very clean, very contemporary. So these two typefaces became uh, the voice of the institution, uh, various different scales. And, different, and the second big formal move is uh, color. So essentially, the director of the center, Neil Haynes, the first thing she told us in a, a meeting is, we don't want it to be drab, because essentially most cultural centers are, you know, Centers for Student of Color at, at these major universities, black and white pictures, you know, grayscale, brown, and essentially trying to make it look like history, mm -hmm. right? Like Martin Luther King in history, mm -hmm. yeah. and using the same five quotations, right? And so um, she's like, you know, it needs to feel contemporary, it needs to feel up today, it needs to have a sense of energy. And so we chose four color schemes that are basically uh, diptychs, like trying to use the two colors at once to try to preserve this sense of identity from section to section, but at the same time create multiplicity within. And the third big form of move is this idea of the frame. So we use the frame as a device, as a world you look into, and essentially trying to create relationships between people of color on campus and people who could support them. And the typography can act on its own in these frames, and the color changes, or you can have typography masked top of image, and it could be used in all these kind of wonderful ways. But essentially, the thought is that um, this system together creates a way to understand the experience of student color on their own terms, rather than trying to sort of you know have a university tone to it that again sort of subjects it to a kind of a top-down authority. So. Uh, and and just to kind of. Uh, look at these decisions from the lens, a uh, strategic lens of like why these decisions were made. So each one had a really clear and important reason. The color, you know, often designers tend to reduce colors to incre increase the legibility and recognizability of a brand. But here we had an opportunity to really project, uh, and design in general has an opportunity to project what uh, things could be. So we didn't want to kind of uh, forego that. And so we went all out with colors, and the way that we achieved recognizability is by using pairs in the color palette. So you'll see that these pairs always appear together, and they don't get muddled by having two pairs at the same time. Um, so th that was our former design director, Nicole Fischetti, uh, you know, her kind of big contribution to this. Um, in, idea, in terms of the softness of the, of the display type, uh, because it had to be very big and loud, we wanted to counter that so it doesn't feel like it's too angry or upset and cannot, and so it should not be kind of undermined uh, based on you know how it was saying something. And uh, the photography was about, we asked 
the students to take us to places on campus where they felt at home. And so people took us into the cathedral, into the Blair Arch, you know, these hallowed spaces. And we just photographed them there in heroic poses. Uh, you know, we interviewed them and we photographed them. And it was kind of visual proof that they, they are here and they do belong here. Um, and then the, the body copy is actually a typewriter font. And that was a nod to the digital kind of revolution that's happening that's bringing to light a lot of the injustices that have existed for a long time. And in many ways, the whole identity is, um, and especially the way it gets articulated in the space, is a nod to that digital culture of um, the phone and making these videos that share experiences. And so those big shapes, when they appear in the space, kind of like a, a projected shape becomes a backdrop uh, for these activities. You could literally stand there and create one of these, um, uh, these uh, you know, videos. Uh, to, yeah. you know. So that's, that, that to us was interesting. Tell us a little bit about um, just the breadth of all the different spaces you had to design for. You know, going through the portfolio page on your site for this project, there's a lot of different rooms and spaces. And right. talk about kind of the challenge around that. And it sounds like you had a pretty short timeline for this project yeah. as well. So just kind of <laughs> talk about that whole process. So it had been divided into the living room and the dining room, and they were calling them these things, and we were just horrified. And but we didn't know how to say it because it's like how do you tell somebody that they're unintentionally being racist, <laughs> and you know people are just going to be defensive, mm-hmm. and so we had to come up with a better idea right before we went to this meeting. So essentially, we subdivided the space into three themes based on the the chant that the students were using during their protest. We're here. We've been here. We are loved, and we thought maybe we're here can be a celebration of contemporary Princeton and you know students of color both within their affinity groups but also basically you know, working together to form a better campus environment. And we've been here, a, a snapshot of the history of Princeton, um, particularly seen through the lens of people of color and their allies and the ways that you know, advocacy had happened in the past so that people could, you know, and including an image of um, the, uh, the workers in the li- Firestone Library that have never been recognized and whose names have never been published. And then um, finally, a room called We Are Loved, which is lined with quotations from authors of color and trying to basically, like people like James Baldwin, um, and using their language to amplify this idea that, uh, like a Juno Diaz quote I really like, that says, like, privilege does not operate without silence. And trying to get people to think and, and um, creating space that's both affirming but also challenging. And our basic thesis was that we're not creating a safe space, right? The, the, critique is that essentially these spaces are quote-unquote safe spaces for um, liberal snowflakes and our, <laughs> our thesis is that we're actually creating a challenging space, a, cha- a space where the dominant norms of you know what is powerful and what is not are reversed and so that when you walk into the space you are challenged and you're challenged to think about your own position if you are a person of color as a person of color and, and what role you play in, um, in this kind of activism. And then also if you are a white person or a person from the dominant majority, um, what kind of role you could potentially play. And it was very interesting because, you know, the project moved very fast. So we went through the proposal and the contract and we had three options. One had just one wall, another had like a few more walls, and the one they chose had a few more walls. But we literally had select 
highlighted walls and everything was signed, everything was done. And then when we began the project, Andy said, um, we're going to do the whole house. And I'm a very process-oriented person, so I started <laughs> freaking out. I was like, uh, you know, we agreed to this, we can't do the whole house, there's another architect involved, I don't want to step on their toes. And he said that, you know, we talk about really um, changing the way people experience this space and the way they feel and their way of being, and we can't really do that unless we take over the whole house. Mm -hmm. And so then we just decided to take over the whole house and we made the models, we did the design, and we showed up to the meeting. And uh, it was interesting because the client loved it. You know, everybody loved it. Um, but they couldn't create... express that because the architect was also in the room and they were yeah. furious. You know, they, mm. they were pretty petulant. They threw stuff on the table. They yelled at us after the meeting. Um, and and it, was, it was pretty awful. Uh, and, and essentially, they uh, there was one moment in the meeting that was really tense and Basically, um, they were sort of showing more of the stuff that they wanted to bring into the space. And I think they were actually very well-intentioned. You know, they were showing these world maps and globes and masks and basically artifacts from around the world. And it's the first time that I've seen, because of cost is usually the calmer of the two of us, you know, he just goes to the meetings and he's really measured and really articulate and able to convince people to do things. And he was shaking. And he said, who are you designing this for? And the architect says, the same people you're designing for. And he said, like, who is this for? It, it was moral it was outrage. Right. It was like, yeah. whose house is this, yeah. right? Because it seemed to me like, I'm from a former colony. I'm from Pakistan, right? So we see remnants of British architecture and rule and this and that. And so it seemed like a kind of a upper middle class home with trinkets from around the world. And not only was it essentializing and otherizing towards, you know, people of color, they might have grown up in New York or, or Florida, whatever, um, but saying that you are African or you are Asian, you know, um, is kind of further aggravating the problem. But then at the same time, it was also creating this kind of home that seemed to be domesticating, which took the problem one level further. Um, so anyway, uh, being in a big room with a committee of people is actually really helpful for us, even though designers usually don't like it. We tend to find that, you know, you can, if you can get the room on your side through reasoned argument, then if there are one or two people who don't, um, are, are the outliers, you know, you can kind of get the people in the room to side with the more reasonable approach. And that's what we did. And so how did that all resolve? Was the architect basically kicked off the job and you were no. allowed to take over? Well, um, Princeton is very, um, it's very kind to its vendors uh, uh, in, in this way, that you, you don't get kicked off a job if you haven't really done anything wrong. So they had basically just followed the instruction that they received. They had interpreted it in their own lens, in their own way, regardless of whether or not to us it articulates you know, a culture of um, of discrimination or doing things the wrong way, uh, they hadn't really done anything wrong from a business point of view, right? Except present their designs and they were approved up until this point, and so it was a big shock. Mm -hmm. uh, so a second meeting happened where uh, they they brought like a a stronger gun into the room, and she was really rude to us. Like she would she interrupted our presentation. Um, she was very critical, trying to basically get our design shut down. And essentially, uh, we tried to maintain calm. 
and talk through the process and basically came to an appropriate um, collaboration. Basically say, okay, here's the furniture that you've selected that we think is appropriate for the space. Um, we don't have any problem with you aesthetically, you know, like uh, trying to figure out how these things mesh together. Um, and so there's, there was some give and take. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it wasn't 100% ideal, like from our, from our point of view, but essentially uh, um, we, we wanted to focus on the results, you know, who are uh, the people that are going to benefit from this, how are they going to benefit, and how can we get it done so that it happens by the opening of the school year. And so um, the university architect, who was a very wise and patient and smart man, essentially like came down and said, "Here are the here's my decision. I've considered everything. Here's what we're going with." And it was really clarifying. Like um, basically, uh, you know, up until that point, he'd been very measured, trying to hear everybody's thoughts and trying to, in the Princeton way, trying to be collegial about like sort of uh, entertaining the various possibilities in, in a situation that's very intellectually and emotionally fraught mm -hmm. and you know as us for us it's like you know we are people of color but that's not all we are and we don't necessarily want to be the ones that have to defend this but essentially we're in a put in that position right so I think he understood that and he gave us um, the the appropriate kind of power to be able to voice our thoughts and to be able to have a design that I think honors that intention so in short we got the walls and the architect got um, the floor and the furniture and they eliminated some of the more, um, uh, the yeah. furniture that was offensive. So, and just to be clear, the university architect was not the one who had come up with all these motifs. He was some kind of a third party above all of this who was yes. overseeing everything, both visual design and furniture and floor plan and all that. Yes. Gotcha. So, would you say that that very tense moment in that meeting was one of the bigger hurdles in this project or in our else? careers <laughs> <laughs> i mean like you can imagine walking into a meeting with a whole bunch of sort of senior level administrators of princeton that you've never met before <laughs> and essentially having to say that the way you're doing this could potentially counter your core aims and lead to even more unhappiness and unrest among students who feel like they're not being heard and I think that institutions don't intend to be tone deaf. It just like it leads to that because sometimes they're they're tasked. People are tasked with making design decisions that they sh have no business making. You know, their their decision making should be around content and what that means. And um, the person you hire should have the the appropriate education and the the kind of sort of conceptual tools to be able to redefine the problem, not just literally take something like the concept of a home and transform it into a space. That's not thinking, you know, like it's, and it, there's no active reversal happening there. And it, that's what's needed in, in a design project like this. And so I think um, it was really scary. And you know, we're a relatively young design firm. We're people of color. Um, we don't have a lot of privilege and we don't have you know much to fall back on. but. If, if we don't tell the truth and we don't sort of, you know, try to make the best project possible, then what good are we? You know, like, why are we at the table and, and what value do we bring? Yeah, and we learned a lot from the process. You know, we learned that every problem can be negotiated and uh, kind of there are many solutions to every single problem. And there are different kind of strategies that you can approach things with. And sometimes you have to have a multi-layered strategy, for example, when we questioned the African chairs and the Asian pillows, the director of the center felt 
attack because she was the one who had previously approved it. Mm. Now she's not a designer, and she didn't really, you know, it, she didn't happen to think about it in the way that we did. That does not mean that she was actively trying to harm, to do, to do harm. And so part of the strategy was, you know, to apologize and say, you know, we didn't, we didn't mean to in any way, you know, undermine your leadership. And then another part of the strategy was convincing. And I think perhaps the biggest thing was to realize and to get everybody to hear about, uh, you know, bring everybody back to the broader goals of the project, which is to address the concerns of the students and to do it in a way that is thoughtful and measured and comprehensive. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a glamorous part of design that, you know, most, <laughs> when I listen to these podcasts, sometimes it sounds like, um, you know, it's very it's very simple, like clients are happy, make big type in space. And <laughs> like, uh, but what does this say is really important uh, and, and what does it mean? And so I think that beyond just what you see on, in terms of the form on the surface, uh, like, I think that a lot of rigor went into what the precise language is and how it represents people. And when you're tasked with that responsibility, I think that that becomes kind of both your burden, but also your uh, your uh, an access point to think about design in these very rigorous ways that are sort of socially connected that often are not thought, thought about. Right. So uh, it was really frightening. Uh, it taught us how to be gracious and professional in situations where other people might not be, and it gave us a sort of a you know confidence in the work that we do. How how do designers learn those things that you guys have learned through this process? How do they how do they pick up on those? Um, I, I don't want to minimize it by saying something you know calling them tips or anything, but you know having that um, awareness, having that vocabulary. Um, to you know, treat things in a manner that's serious and appropriate. Um, you're not taught that in design school. How, where do you get that? So before this meeting, I went to my former uh, thesis advisor, who I had known since freshman year of college. Her name is Patricia Fernandez Kelly, and she is a smart, aggressive, powerful woman. And I, we sort of brought these models to her. We're like, we're going to go into this meeting with these people. What do we do? And she gave us the language. She, uh, she said, be constructive, be humorous, try to make jokes when possible, um, diffuse attention, but at the same time use the words shame and embarrassment. She said, works for pretty much any situation like this, <laughs> where uh, who doesn't want to avoid shame and embarrassment, yeah. right? Who, uh, you know, language like we are loved um, that goes on the wall, who doesn't want to promote this universal sense of love, you know, and, and trying to basically take uh, the intellectual proposition um, and frame it in a way that's clearly legible what the political stakes are, but at the same time um, trying to be constructive and providing a solution to the problem and not just simply sort of like rearticulating it. It's very easy to say like, oh, we have this big, you know, problem on our hands, but it's much more difficult to, to be constructive and provide meaningful uh, solutions and also alternatives to those solutions in case you don't want the like that. This is like just like, okay, here are different ways of doing this and um, here is our recommended way. Yeah. And usually like well, another thing we've learned from this project and others is that clients are really relying on designers to give advice. Um, if the designer can demonstrate that they have really understood and heard the problem and they are on the same side as the client, 
and they've internalized it, and it is their professional recommendation to go one way or and not another, then it can be really reassuring. You know, before a client is signs the check to do a huge production in terms of graphics, you know, to look them in the eye and say, this is the right thing to do, is kind of the designer's job. And often we find that designers hear feedback or criticism and just change it and then dilute it. And uh, what we learned is that sometimes you have to kind of push back and clients really appreciate that and say, wait a minute, you said this and then you said this. So how can we synthesize these two to achieve your ultimate goal? And so I, I think that designers need to be a lot more um, confident in their judgment and in their recommendations and be a lot more vocal about con conveying to the client how best to achieve their strategic goals through design. I think that's fantastic advice um, for anybody listening to this. You know, it's like uh, all of these skills, the fonts, yes, they're incredibly important, the color, the photography, but the communication aspect of it, the mindfulness, obviously, of, of it as well is incredibly valuable. Um, do you have one piece out of this entire project that stands out as like the moment that kind of made you the happiest or is there anything from either the process or a particular quote on the wall we might have two different things <laughs> but uh i if you if you scroll up a little um i really like the image um i really like that uh where sorry could go down a little bit <laughs> right there uh i really like this image where you see sort of a a bracketed divide in the wall in terms of just the wall paint where the bright blue paint goes over the you know the crown molding and then also the baseboard because it changes this from basically what was originally a formerly eating club turned into a cultural center and now into a student space and that single move of transforming the architecture by framing it with color and then embedding language into the bookshelves here it radically to me changes uh, the the performance of um, of the space right and to me, like before I met Picasso, I would not have thought this way. I had these simple formal moves that are essentially architectural, uh, that redefine what space means and how you interact with it, and not just what it looks like. Yeah, I, I think that's, to me, an amazing thing. <laughs> it seems very minor, but all the things you learn in school about like sort of letter spacing, and like these things, why are they important? Like the, the reason why these sort of simple formal moves are important is that they create emotional affect. And emotional affect has social consequence, and I think that, that that's like uh, if there's one takeaway for for like like plugging design education, it's that learning these things that seem trivial or minor or you know like methodical as a way of course of you know being a designer eventually adds up to having a, a rich vocabulary for being able to transform the way people live and work. And I think that that is like, to me, a fulfillment of the modernist vision, right, for the 21st century. Two questions for you about this space. Um, one, did the university give you any trouble with painting literally floor to ceiling? Like, were there any sort of kind of hurdles or red tape you had to get over to paint everything? <laughs> Well, by the time that we uh, we had made an argument about like sort of you know not being racist, <laughs> and, and like that was that seemed like a minor problem, right? But there were struggles around painting in the sense that it's 
hard to do this for a university, especially like Princeton. They don't do this, yeah, yeah. you know, like they don't make things bright colors. I mean, and in some spaces they do, but like they certainly don't sort of you know paint things in a way that's non-traditional yeah. and challenging. And then, but the so physical physical models really help yes. because once they approve that then um, any kind of logistical hurdles could be overcome by saying yeah, pointing to, to the, the model. model. <laughs> you approve this. And then, but the thing is like the ceiling wasn't in the physical model and we did spec like it can't look brown. Essentially it was like this yellowish paper brown and we were like, no, it can't be that. And so like the last day we were, we were really, really worried because essentially everything looked beautiful and the ceiling was this like ugly eggshell yellow color. And so um, we emailed the university architect and said, could we please paint this white, <laughs> please, please, you know, and he said, of course we should paint it white, and, and then uh, that made it happen. So, and then my other question related to this was that, and this is throughout all of the designs and the spaces, um, you use a lot of negative space. You definitely, it seems that you did not feel you had to cram this or kind of fill all of the space you had. Just kind of talk about that process and the balance you've created. So. This work, of course, draws a lot of inspiration from Paula Scher, from Michael Beirut. You can kind of see the seed of those ideas, like typographic language in space with bold color, right? And um, I mean, work for Paula, I have so much admiration for the way that she transforms space with type, and to be part of that lineage is really important to us. And at the same time, um, I think it's convenient nowadays, uh, it's becoming an advertising solution to put like one big word in space. And so I've seen like words like self-control, and I'm like, that's like a huge self-control in space, right? Like, but, and it's patronizing, you know, and, and, and as opposed to empowering. And so the choice of vocabulary really matters to us. And the note about negative space is really important too because people have to actually work in this space and they have to be able to be comfortable studying and to, to having conversations in the space. So in some ways it needs to perform as a backdrop to those conversations and not the, the main event itself. And so while there's some like sort of large type in the space, particularly in a stairwell where like it's a space of passage, you can create a two stories um, you know, piece of typography. But in other spaces, it's fairly minimal and, and capacious because right? it then allows people to project their own imagination into the space and for them to feel like you know, control is being ceded to them for them to act on the space. Um, so yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, I'd say that architecture usually is performs uh, in a way that you experience it in a state of distraction, you don't really notice it. You feel like you know architecture, you walk through cities and buildings and rooms, but it has an impact on you know, how you interact with other people, how you feel, and it happens in a, in a very kind of secret way. And so when you take these graphics and make them uh, huge, uh, they operate as a poster in a space. And what we're trying to do is to embed them within the very architecture so that they can uh, be experienced in a state of distraction and they kind of affect how you feel and how you behave, but don't feel like it's yelling at you. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Paula Scherer because in some ways to me this feels like the antithesis of what Paula Scherer would do. You know, a lot of her work is very busy and you know, she does fill every nook and cranny with typography and she has beautiful style and beautiful artwork, but this is very much the opposite of that, but almost the complement to that. Right. I mean, I think that uh, most designers have a sense of horror vacui when they try to uh, create typography in space. The reason is that it's really, really satisfying to put like a big word or a letter form, right? But is that necessarily um, the appropriate design solution for every space? I think that's one. And then two is um, 
like in order for the profession to evolve, we have to do different things, right? Like, and, and I think that um, uh, one of the strategies that we try to deploy is like, how can you create a sense of place that's different from other places? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's like, you know, particularly this is not a very large space, right? You can see the ceiling height is not very high, and so you don't want people to feel trapped in the space. And partic- uh, I think like, you know, you also don't want people to feel like this typography is a, on one register. The reason being that like. Okay, it's great the first time you see it. It's like a billboard, and it like you know it offers its value to you. But if you have to see it again and again, how can you create something that's more enduring? Mm-hmm. That that um, you know is something that you can live with, and you can feel surprised by, um, alternately, sort of you know in different situations, and depending on how your day went. Yeah. Lucas, was there any moment, any particular uh, part of this project that you're particularly happy with? Um, design-wise. Yeah, I think that so above the bathroom there's a quote that says everybody should feel welcome in every space at Princeton um, or everyone should feel welcome in every space at Princeton. It was said by one of the students Samuel Santiago uh, during my interview with him in the Woodrow Wilson School where he was uh, he was a major he was majoring in that and it's just one kind of little chunk of words that he said that I think really encapsulates the whole project for me. You know, recently we watched um, Hamilton and in the end where Aaron Burr, you know, has shot Hamilton, there's a song about the world. I didn't realize that the world was wide enough for both of us. And I think that's really important to recognize in the current, you know, time that we're living in is that you don't have to put somebody else down in order to flourish or really, uh, you know, achieve uh, self-actualization. And this quote placed above the water fountains and by the bathrooms really kind of references a history of segregation, but also charts a new kind of vision. Uh, So spoken by a freshman at Princeton and, you know, would have easily been lost, but kind of preserving it here. Uh, makes it an important value that's kind of rearticulated, and of course we like that formally it gets projected with, back with the architecture. So that's a definitely a reference back to Paula Share. So uh, can you um, tell us who else was involved in the project? Uh, the design director was um, was Nicole Fischetti. She's now working in in Seattle uh, for Studio Matthews, and Jihae um, Um was the graphic designer on the project. And we had an intern, uh, Raina Clarissa, who also worked on this project. She's a student of MICA. Can you tell our listeners where they can learn a little bit more about uh, your work and this project? So our website is isometricstudio.com, and our social media is Isometric Studio, and you can learn more there. You can also contact us, and you know, we we don't we don't often get to talk about this project, so I think that. Uh, we're really happy to have the discussion, particularly in light of the political climate and everything that's happening. And is this building open to the public? Oh, yes. So if you are anywhere in or around the Princeton area, yeah. go check it out. 58 Prospect. <laughs> Great. Well, thank, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. To see a slideshow with images related to the project for this episode, please go to dissection.jkdesign.com. And while you're there, you can also learn more about us and listen to past episodes. Also, don't forget to go to iTunes, where you can subscribe and leave us a positive review if you like the show, which we hope you did. And you can also listen on SoundCloud, and you can leave comments on this particular episode there. 
Dissection has been brought to you by JK Design, a branding, advertising, and design agency with offices in New York and New Jersey. To learn more, check us out at jkdesign.com. Turn